Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn from Focus Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you're tuning in with us, be sure to check out all the content we put out into the investment universe. Follow me on Twitter at Focus Compound. Uh, if you are watching us on YouTube, hit that subscribe button. And of course, if you're listening on Spotify or the podcast app, if you hit that subscribe button, it helps spread the word of everything that we are doing here. If you're interested in learning more about our money management services, we manage capital both through a hedge fund and separate managed accounts, reach out to me, Andrew at focuscompound.com, or you could also get information at www.focuscompound.com on the Invest With Us tab. Um, uh, you should get everything that you would need there. So in today's podcast, we are going to talk about what's going on. This is our free form podcast. Um, I guess to set the stage, we could talk about what's going on. Uh, the SP 500 year to date is down about 12%. The NASDAQ year-to-date is down about 18%. Energy, XLE, is up about 37%. And consumer staples is down about 3%. Um, the industrial sector down 7%. And the 10-year yield is, I have written down from earlier today, at 1.829%. So we've really had a rotation in the markets, I guess you could say, from you know growth in the NASDAQ to energy going crazy. Mm -hmm. um, uh, a lot of that is probably from everything that's going on with Russia and consumer staples only being down about negative 3%. Uh, so I thought that was interesting. We've had this rotation. And if you look at like the print of the SP 500 being down about 12%, that's not a great representation of a lot of other stocks in the market that are down like 30, 40%. Yeah, we talked about a little, um, the, like tech stocks. Uh, yeah, we talked what we do, like the ones that are down 70% or so. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty crazy. But you've really seen a, a rotation. And we're actually going to um, upload a podcast this week on the psychology of investing during extreme volatility. Mm -hmm. uh, so be on the lookout for that. If you're listening to this uh, right now, it should be the next podcast. Um, but there are a lot of stocks that have really sold off a lot. Um, uh, as of this recording as well, the U.S. is reportedly going to ban uh, imports from Russia of oil. Now that's only 3% of our oil imports, so it's not like it's that big. And you actually had spoken a lot about how our exposure to Russia is not anything significant. But um, you know, it's interesting, these sanctions that people are taking towards Russia um, and stuff like that. Oil is at $124. Per barrel, so going crazy. As of us recording this, yeah. We're As we're recording this, that, yeah. So people are going to feel that at the gas pump. Yeah, um, I think we have a record this week. We should have a record high for gasoline mm -hmm. um, if we don't already, but we will, you know, within a week. I mean, I'm seeing in some places of the country, like California, seven dollars per well, gallon. California, yeah, California is gonna be different. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of curious. I mean, from that perspective, higher oil prices. Yeah. How does that traditionally affect an economy? Oh, it depends. I think a lot less the U.S. than in the past because the U.S. is uh, the largest oil producer right now. You know, not a big uh, exporter of oil, but a big producer of oil. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's good for some companies. Uh, it's not good for some people using gas. It's not good for cruise lines. It's not good for airlines. Um, normally, it would affect demand in those things, uh, but I don't think it'll affect a lot this year. 
because there's just people are going to travel anyway. There was just there was already too much demand for for like those longer trips to do those things. But if it hadn't been for COVID, you know, you'd see, you know, it would hurt hotels, theme parks, things that you know, Las Vegas, things that people had to travel a lot for, and all that because it drives up the price of airline tickets and and all that. So you don't actually think it's going to affect the consumer as much this year because no. the pent up demand. So that's a fade trade right there. I mean, it might affect the consumer in that they have less money to spend. Okay. Right. Cause they're going to drive however much they're going to drive. But I, I think compared to most years. Yeah. Like I said, I was in Disney world and I, it was, I'm gone the same week, multiple years, uh, not one year because of COVID. Uh, so exact same week. And uh, it was definitely busier. Um, it was overwhelmingly, people from the United States. So definitely the domestic demand for those parks is higher than ever before. Uh, room rates were incredibly high compared to most years. Um, you know, and I think I said, um, when we talked about like Netflix and Disney and stuff that like the parks, I think would do really well so that people think of Disney as just a streaming thing. They're going to see a real difference there. Um, so I think with the pent up demand for those things, yeah, it, you won't see as much of an effect like cruise lines before in the 2010s, say like 2010 to 2013 or something had a tough time because prices were pretty high for fuel and that's a big deal for them. And they might feel they can't really raise prices because the recovery was pretty slow for consumers, you know, who take cruises for out of 2008. But I think now the, the, I mean, the recovery is really strong coming out of COVID because you just have not been able to do those things for a while. Mm -hmm. People haven't been taking a lot of, uh, vacations that involve airline travel. They haven't been doing a lot of cruises and a lot of all those sorts of things, or even long road trips and things like that. So I think, you know, this particular time, it'll be less of an issue for those companies. Um, it still, it just means less money for people though. If they're spending on gas, then they're not spending on something else unless they're using up their savings. How do you think about businesses protecting their margins? Let's say they ship a lot of things or they have fuel costs and stuff like that, labor. How do you think about that? Like in, in extreme inflationary time, like well, we're currently going through. Yeah. I mean, if they can raise their prices, then it's okay. I think, you know, we're going to see some worse earnings things, but I think that people have been kind of optimistic about margins. So you're going to see more of the, the sales numbers good, but the, the margins aren't so good, I think. Um, Cause I saw lots of people talking about, how well earnings did and you know margins and some people even saying that like margins hold up really well in inflation you know i, I don't know that that will happen so much in the uh future mm -hmm. so regarding cruise ships i actually had cruise ships run down mm -hmm. because i want to talk about entertainment today um have you looked at any cruise ships companies recently i didn't think they were that cheap okay um this is an issue with all these things um like the day before we recorded this, I saw that Cinemark was down like 15% at one point or something, which really doesn't make any sense because um, I don't think that even concerns about a recession. So so Cinemark's like in a category that's probably consumer discretionary or something is probably what they're categorized as for like um, indexes and things like that. But um, it, that's not affected by, you know, movie theater stuff is not affected at all by like recession. Obviously what happened is that there's, Fear of high inflation and low growth is like what happened yesterday in the market. So um, that wouldn't be, you know, that just wouldn't make sense for Cinemark. You know, Marcus, 
is a little bit more business travel stuff and things like that. But I think both of them, they wouldn't really be affected that much. Did you read my notes when I uh, was, was not in the room? Because I have, have next. because I've have, I have, I saw Batman. Friday. Okay. I was going to ask you, did you see Batman? I did not see really? Batman. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I'm surprised. I well, I'm supposed to see it this weekend. Three hour That's why I'm movie. not able to. Very long. Yeah, 134 long. million. And it, and it did fine in terms yeah. of the, yeah. They did fine. Yeah. So like, you know, we've talked about before, like the chicken and the egg thing. Mm -hmm. I think if the product is there, if the yeah. movie slate's good, mm -hmm. which 2022, I was looking at it, there's it's a lot of great, big name stuff. Terrific movie slate for 2022 yeah i think theaters could have a pretty good year yeah and um so obviously much bigger weekend for the batman than um other movies recently however given what property it was and everything you know outside of covid and stuff it probably would have been expected to make something like 125 million or whatever anyway but uh i had mentioned the what week before or two weeks before uh uncharted and dog both did at least as good probably better than they would have ever been predicted to do even before COVID. Um, those aren't really big movies, mm -hmm. but they did really well compared to expectations. I would say of what you'd ex uh, what you should expect that kind of movie to do. Um, so because those are not the, if you looked at the 2022 slate of movies, no one would have picked out those two. Mm -hmm. You know, um, Uncharted is a big video game, but uh, you know, and we talked about who's in it. So Marky you had Mark. someone, yes, and. Um, you had Tom Holland, who was had a very big movie. That like dude's just killing. He's everywhere. <laughs> like a month before, everywhere. Uh, the Batman is really that that one. Batman is a really big IP. You know that. Um, but actually, that is bigger than. Let's see. Hmm. That's probably bigger than the Joker's opening. Yeah, but I mean, it's a you got it with the rating and everything. You've got this would be expected to open bigger than that movie, but. Still, if you compare it to like comparable movies, it's probably right in there. Mm -hmm. So it's no lower than it would have been before COVID. Probably it's pretty much right where you would have expected. I think I was a harsh grader. Some of my buddies also saw the movie and they yeah. gave it an eight out of ten. I okay. gave it a six out of ten. We'll get to. We'll have to. We could talk about well, after you've seen it because I don't want to spoil see, it. Uh, cinema score, right? So like the exit polling thing. If you get less than like an A minus, that means people hated the movie. A plus is like. Uh, you know, good for that kind of movie. Mm -hmm. I've there've been a couple movies that average an F, that almost unheard of. They almost disappear from theaters immediately. Uh, yeah, so that's like uh, sort of like ratings of things for. Uh, you ever see ratings for things of streaming things? If it gets much less than like four and a half stars, then it means because you know people are picking out what they want to see. So yeah. you know it's really something's off about this movie if it gets a lower rating. Yeah. So one hundred thirty-four million. Bodes very well for all movie theater investors and movie theater companies. Mm -hmm. This is not, I believe Batman has not gone to China yet, which will be a huge market for them. I think, did it say, I thought I read that it would be a this bunch upcoming of movie, weekend. Okay, so a bunch of movies recently have not gone to China release. China has been taking less and less Hollywood movies. Um, in fact, uh, let's see. Um yeah, I can't remember the last Marvel movie that got a release in China. They haven't had any of the recent ones. So have you looked at Cinemark and tried to like come up with a evaluation potentially of the company? Yeah, so it's pr pretty cheap. They I just mean, came out their 10K. It's about 10 times what you'd expect earnings to be um, on leveraged. But it's leveraged because there's a lot of debt. So if you took that out, if you just take the um, 2019 sales were 3.28 
billion. Is that what it says yeah. there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you apply the margin that you had um, over time. It's like 10 to 15% margin. Actually, it's more like a 12 to 16% margin. Um, you apply that, apply your normal tax rate, stuff like that. You get an amount that you would expect. It's that today it's probably trading about 10 times, I'd say. So, and then you have debt. So their actual P is lower than that. So it is cheap, but it is kind of cheap if you have a full recovery in uh, movie theater stuff, which I think you'll have. Mm-hmm. How long until you think it gets back to, you know, pre-COVID levels within five years? Oh. 2022 should have a should be a pretty good year for theaters. The slate's Very, there, the yeah. demand's there. Very good year. Um, they do have theaters, and so Cinemark only is really U.S. and Latin America. Mm-hmm. So they have some Latin American stuff, which until very recently was not open to the same extent as the U.S. They had more COVID issues. Um, so that was probably holding them back a little last year, uh, at the end of last year. Um, yeah, I mean, we'll see. You could, depending on how it goes, 2022 could be, they, they've moved some movies already and maybe they'll move more of them. But if it sticks with the current slate that they have now, you could definitely be back to where you were before. They, they haven't raised prices and they kind of talked about that, I think, in one of their earnings calls. Um, I think it was Cinemark that talked about it. But they, they've said, you know, that they want to rebuild um, getting people comfortable with the theater experience and all that. And so I think they're all holding back on raising prices. Obviously, adjusted for inflation now, they should be higher than they were before. And normally, theaters would be right in there with inflation, but they haven't been. Uh, they've all done better with uh, average food and beverage per person. Mm-hmm. But some of that's skewed, I think, by hours. I think a lot of them aren't going to be open the same hours that they were before, is my guess. Really? So. Do you think they'll be less open then? Yeah, I think the, they'll be open more during hours when people um, uh, eat and drink and especially drink alcohol. Um, I think they'll be open more afternoons and evenings and less mornings slash early afternoons at some theaters. Yeah, some of the theaters were already experimenting with some of that stuff anyway. I think because of the labor issues, that's the most logical way to solve the labor problem is to be open fewer hours. You know, a lot of places certain weekend days and just in general maybe like being open three or four p.m till midnight is when you make most of your money anyway and so the fact that theaters used to always be open at like 10 or 11 a.m to show a movie you didn't sell a lot of food and beverage stuff you didn't really have that many people coming uh there was no harm in doing it you're paying rent anyway but um you don't take a lot of labor but i think the labor is so short now that they'll probably do that. And they also just got more experience from COVID. So I wouldn't be surprised if a bunch of things have shorter hours. I've said that I think in general, the economy will have shorter hours. I think fewer places will do overnight. You know, you'll have fewer like Walmarts doing 24 Mm seven and stuff like that. I just think that's the biggest change from COVID. It'll be interesting to see how long it stays like that, because as soon as their competitors go back to 24 seven, then then who's going to follow suit? Yeah. yeah. It's kind of like, you know, business casual at work after yeah. COVID. You've heard these stories of people that aren't wearing suits. But then as soon as somebody wears a suit or, you know, starts to dress more professional, or whatever, then it's like, well, the rest of the office starts to follow suit like that. My prediction will be coming out of the next recession is when you'll see the hours change. Back to 24-7? That's when people will be tempted to do it. Mm-hmm. When, you, when labor's tight and when demand is really high, there's not a temptation to do it. When you do it is a lot of these things was early 2010s and stuff and a bunch of different things always talking about like um, the value 
looking for the value customer and all those sorts of things before trading down and all that. And I don't think there's a need to do a lot of that right now. I mean, they found during COVID a bunch of these places that by having shorter hours, they still had everyone come to their um, stores. So would you ever like look at a situation like, okay, I'm bullish on movie theaters. Would you mm -hmm. ever kind of go up the supply chain and think about movie studios or are studios just completely off limits? So studios are interesting. Uh, Buffett would never invest in a studio. Right. Actually, someone was asking me about that recently. They were asking about Netflix, if it would be a Buffett investment. And I said, I really don't think so because of the, the production side of what Netflix has to do. I don't think the issue is so much the, you know, he could understand it certainly as just a subscription business, you know, and showing other people's movies. But they're going to do so much investment in uh, probably more TV series, but also movies of their own that, you know, billions probably. Um, that I think that's the part that he wouldn't like so much. So like the actual upfront cost of producing and making a movie. Yeah. That's is, an investment that's risky in itself. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, but uh, yeah. So, so Netflix, I think, you know, at least half of the major studio output is not going to go to Netflix ever, you know, because when you're talking about Disney and Warner and stuff, it's, that's like half the market for theatrical movies and the box office, and they're not going to get those movies ever. And then right now they're not getting, um, uh, Paramount and, um, universal. Now I don't know if Paramount Universal's streaming services will ever get big enough that they'll have the scale they need to, um, always put it on their own streaming services instead of eventually probably have to shut down those streaming services um, put it on Hulu, for example. Sell it somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. But but um, even though they're not making money yet on their streaming services, uh, I think HBO and so Warner and um, Disney are are big enough. They're gonna stick with it certainly. Um, so I mean, so you know, Netflix used to be able to get lots of movies and, and TV production and stuff, and they're not going to get that on their service. So they're gonna have to make it themselves. So it'll be billions of dollars spent on that. And I don't mm -hmm. know how um, Buffett would feel about that. How would Jeff feel about it? Uh, I don't think it's particularly, um, I think it's a difficult part of their business, right? I think it's a really difficult part of Netflix's business. It, the cost of the stuff that, that um, they're buying the rights to. and But making in-house, I think, makes sense. You know, I think that makes a lot of sense. And um I don't, I've never thought movie production and stuff is as unpredictable as people think. Even small studios make like a movie a month. Um, they have a pretty good hit rate compared to like consumer products and things like that. You can predict these things on average. It, it's okay. I don't see it as much different than video game publishing or book publishing or music publishing or any of those. I mean, what were you, when you invested in DreamWorks yeah. animation, I mean, what was the thought process, the thesis that went into that investment? So DreamWorks was much riskier on the production side because it made one to two movies per year. Um, it never really got to where it was making two all the time. Uh, so if those movies were flops, then obviously their earnings would be bad. Uh, but, you know, it's just... Uh, however, the hit rate for large animated movies is a lot stronger. And... Uh, um, it was a lot based on looking at what it would look like later in time. So what do they already have the rights to? And then what are these things worth? And what's the library worth? You know, in that case, it was more 
Um, when they're Wall Street doesn't tend to like any of these kinds of businesses when they are hit driven, but then after they've built up a library, so all these older companies have it, then their earnings look very predictable, right? So if you look at like Disney or or Warner or whatever, um, they're not right now because they're doing they're losing money on the streaming and all that, but but normally they look much more predictable. But that predictableness is because they have so much um, stuff that's already been released in the past that they're making money off of. It hides how the new releases are still very um, volatile instead of learning to just live with that volatility. But I think in the long run, you know, um, that's just what the business is. And, you know, it, that's where you make a lot of money. If, if one of those becomes a hit, then you have a franchise. And that's just what you have to live with if you're a longer term investor in it. So in the last podcast, when somebody asked you if you had to spend 100% of your net worth mm -hmm. invested in an industry, which industry would it be? And you had said entertainment. Right. And your justification was it's just so wide and pretty recession proof that mm -hmm. that's just something that you would feel comfortable investing in. Is there a particular business in the entertainment industry that you feel most comfortable with or that you just quite simply like the most? Uh, no, I wouldn't say so. Um, there's a lot of different things. We talked about parks, you know, with Disney and, and all of that. You have um, uh, movie theaters, which we've talked about. I think that's fine too. Um, I, I think a lot of the ones that are doing one thing are easier to analyze. When you talk about the studios, you know, DreamWorks was a standalone movie studio, basically. It, by the time that I was looking at it, it did some um, TV contract type stuff for for Disney, uh, for um, for Netflix, and had some uh, deals with Nickelodeon too that um, were a little bit different, but lower risk uh, TV production stuff for them. But generally, it was output agreements and um, the just the general results of their movies. Um, that one's easier to analyze. So I think something like that, I think, um, Cinemark is easier to analyze. I think right now Warner and Disney and all of those are a mix of so many different businesses that it's hard to take them apart and analyze them or mm -hmm. say, you know, Universal's owned by Comcast. Paramount is, what did they change their name to? You know, Viacom, uh, uh, yeah. Something like that. Mm -hmm. So anyway, uh, they all operate under their own, uh, <laughs> I think it's confusing all these, they all operate under stuff. their, they all operate under their own names for releasing things and stuff. So like, um, yeah, if you watch a James Bond movie, it's gonna say United Artists, which is just a, uh, which is really just MGM, which, you know, Amazon's trying to buy. Um, but United Artists isn't much of anything that, that puts anything out anymore. Um, you know, they, they each just have different names that they release things under and stuff. I mean, like Sony, you have uh, Columbia and you also have Sony Classic, uh, Sony, what do they call it? Sony, yeah, something like that. Anyway, they have an independent label that they do smaller movies under. Do you think movie theaters are great because there's so much information coming out about like movies and stuff like that yeah. basically daily where it's like, well, you could kind of there's literally, check for thesis creep and stuff like that? It has the most data of any industry that you can look at. Yeah. That's what's great about it. That's why I tell people go to the numbers. They have daily results. Mm -hmm. And it's, of course, it's because of the distributors put out the information. So the distributor that was distributing the, the movie um, puts out the information of how much the movie made and all that. And so this is all information that has to be, you know, it, the whole thing runs on having to be an open book about everything. 
because you're trusting other people do each of these things. No one can hide all this data. Netflix can because they control all of it. Mm -hmm. So we don't know anything about it. But you know how many you know how how much money everything made. I mean, like I said, with the the numbers, it doesn't just do weekend things. You have daily results for every day. No, they also have things by country and all that. Mm -hmm. So you have really detailed information about it. To some extent, the budgets are known. They try to hide it and try to lie about it and everything. But we can kind of figure out what the budgets are and everything. Um, but I think the movie theaters are the ones that are easiest to look at as an investor. Because although we have all this information, the problem is you, it's very hard. We can't just like invest in just Warner Brothers as a studio or just um, Pixar or Disney Animation or uh, Marvel or Lucasfilm. Those are all things that are lumped in with Disney. And you also have to get ABC with it, Hulu, Disney Plus streaming, all that stuff with the parks Gotta and like the cruise diagram lines. it out. Yeah. And same thing with like Universal, with Comcast. You've got a mix of all sorts of other things. So, and you're going to have that with Warner Discovery. Um, Warner Brothers is going to be a fairly small part of the overall company. So if you were to, at this point in the cycle, in the recovery, you know, when you think about like the movie slate and the fact that Batman did so great, I mean, if you were to come up with a thesis for getting comfortable with investing in a movie theater, I mean, what are some things that you would be looking for? What are some things that you'd be tracking, like the KPIs? I mean, where would your brain be at with it from like an investment perspective? I think right now, uh, Reading is different. So there's there's other ones listed in other countries that you can buy into, European ones and things like that. Um, but if we're just going with the ones that are the U.S. ones that you can see, um, you've got Reading, you've got Marcus, and you've got Cinemark. Um, Reading financially and stuff, I'm not sure. It has so much more exposure to real estate and things like that. I'm not sure I'd be 100% um, uh, feel good about doing that without learning a lot more. Um, Marcus... You got a lot of hotel exposure, but they have lots of real estate. They've sold off some of that real estate. The hotels are probably worth a lot. Um, they have a convertible uh, bond thing that will dilute you, but they're probably in a strong enough financial condition that you could buy into that or you could buy into Cinemark. And I think we're at a point where financially they're doing okay. Um, AMC, you've noticed I'm not talking about. I was going to say, is AMC even a considered no. movie theater company anymore? Uh, Just completely off limits? Yeah. What's what's going on with AMC's that? off limits for investing? Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, Cinemark. You know, I think you based on this year, uh, the movies that are planned for this year and stuff. I think you could, and how we've progressed with with COVID, I think you're at a point where you could probably, if you like it, you could buy it now. I don't think you have to be real worried about it. Let's see what the stock has done. I think it's still below. Pre-COVID. Pre-COVID, yeah, it which... was around 40. And then maybe right before COVID, it was 30-something. But I'd say 40, 45 was, yeah. Mm -hmm. A dollar's a share, you know. So it was in that range, what, 35 to $45 in the year or so before COVID? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's high for all time was probably 45. What's interesting, if you go to an all-time chart, um, now some of these have some dilution issues. But Cinemark and Marcus are what, at prices that they saw 15 to 25 years ago? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you've obviously you've had a lot of inflation and all of that. Yeah. I don't think they were necessarily all that cheap and everything. Um, the value investors would love them, but they're very 
cash generative. Um, they had a lot of CapEx before. If you go look at Cinemark, I think, let's see, they probably did 500 million in cash flow from operations, but then they were spending 300 million. Mm -hmm. Yeah, over 300 million in CapEx. So if you do it on a free cash flow basis, that's not amazing right now. On a, um, it's 15 to 20 times on a uh, on leverage basis that is EV if you use free cash flow into EV, which, you know, in today's market, people would say that's cheap. That's okay. Yeah. yeah. It's a little mm -hmm. cheap. Um, but in terms of like cash flow from operations and all that, they were doing, they were doing 500 before this. Um, right. That one was last year they had where they were less than 500. Each of the last three years, they were over 500 million in yeah. cash flow from operations. Mm -hmm. So um, your, let's see, the EV is what does it say around 4 billion? I believe so. Yeah. Yep. 3.8 billion. So, you know, a lot of times people say eight times EV to EBITDA. I'm okay with that. Well, this is a lot. Cash flow operations is better than EBITDA. You know, they're paying taxes on it and everything. And uh, it's actual cash that they're generating. Um, I don't mind EBITDA as a measure, but the thing about the theaters is as compared to other things, they tend to turn a lot of that into actual cash that you get. And as compared to some other companies, these companies tend not to have an insane amount of stock-based compensation. Because you notice when we do cash flow from operations, I sometimes mention the stock-based compensation because mm -hmm. we do some of these more recently public companies and all that, and sometimes they have really high stock-based compensation. Yeah. So would you want to learn more about their capital allocation because are they going to spend that much on CapEx? I mean, do you have an idea of what the industry is going to look like over the next five years? I mean, is this going to more screens? I know you have said that you think in the future there's going to be less screens. I mean, how would you think about from like an industry position? And before you answer that, there is some construction going on. We do have very sensitive mics. I apologize if that's coming through, um, but I'll pass the ball to you, Jeff. Um, I think they'll pay it in dividends, but they haven't reinstated the dividend, right? So we can see what the dividends were in the past. Mm -hmm. That's your favorite point in the business cycle, if you will, um, is when growth mode is off. It's all about profits and it's about free cash flow, buying back stock and paying dividends. Yeah. So I think they've done CapEx mostly to improve the theaters, um, putting in lounge, uh, you know, I think Cinemark uses the term luxury loungers. I think that's what they call their, their um, improved seating stuff and uh, food and beverage and all that stuff. And so I think they will do that, which they haven't done since COVID, uh, done much of their, you can see CapEx is barely anything. And then I think they'll pay everything else out to you in dividends, is my guess. Now, they may have to pay down debt for a little while, right? Because, I mean, they don't have too much debt, to be honest. For the size of their company? Uh, for and the like kind of business margins is, and everything. But, but they have more debt than they used to have, right? Because yeah. they have leases. They lease everything on, like Marcus, who owns, what, two-thirds or so of those, mm -hmm. their things. Um, they own all their hotels um, that, they, that they actually, um, uh, the ones they actually own. Well, not quite, but basically the ones they actually own, not the ones they just operate. And Marcus has always thought about their leases as a form of debt as well. Some companies don't, but Marcus mm -hmm. has always thought about it like that. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, what does it say for long-term debt for um, Cinemark? $2.4 Okay. And... Um, then they have the capital leases, but that's included in the stuff, the numbers we've already been giving you. Yeah, capital yeah. leases one point one billion. I mean, that is a lot. Um, that's five times cash flow from operations. I mean, I think they'll pay it down, but I do think that 
private equity or something would run it at this level of debt to to um cash flow mm -hmm. you know like if i think you know it's not i mean because how much do they have in uh cash yeah they have 700 million mm -hmm. so on a net basis it's yeah i mean we're not talking about that much you could run it easily with three times debt to ebitda all the time probably of course now we had covid so you've seen an example i would say normally well what could happen that you could have this big drop off because if you look look at all years except covid mm-hmm in, in the past, you know, in your cash flow statement, um, you can get some idea. So cash flow from operations, you can see it every year before COVID. Yeah, 529 million, 557 million, 562 million, and then 2020, and a cash outflow of 330 million. Right, and, and people can go to QuickFS if you're a um, subscriber to that service and download the financials and see the 20 years, you know. But um, you could see that, going all the way back it's very predictable the cash flow from operations is very very predictable as compared to other industries where the you know um same sort of net income results doesn't have you that predictable cash the cash flow from operations which is mostly what you need if you put a lot of debt onto something is to have very consistent cash flow from operations so i don't think that that's really a problem but yeah i think they'll pay down debt for the next few years so what were they ha doing in dividends before uh we can find out on a share basis Okay, we'll go to the income statement. Okay. Um, let's see. They, on the overview, you can see you what know, they had raised it dividend to. Dividend per share. So uh, before COVID, did they get to, was it 150? What was it at? Yeah, pre-COVID. I mean, 2017, $2.26. 2018, $1.83. 2019, $1.63. What was the dividend per share, though? I'm sorry, earnings per share. Um, a buck sixteen, buck twenty eight, a buck thirty six. Yeah. So if COVID hadn't happened, they weren't going to cut the dividend at any point. They were going to slightly raise it, you know, over time. So you had a dollar thirty six. Yeah. I mean, if they got back to that, then that's what they'll pay out to you. Mm -hmm. And what is that now? Fifteen dollars a share. Mm -hmm. So you know, eight nine percent dividend yield. Um, when if if and when they restore it. Um, but in between now and then you can pay that out in, um, uh, you can pay down debt. That's something I always look at on the overview page on QuickFS is I look at their EPS mm -hmm. and then I compare that to the dividends per share just to see really quickly, like how much they're paying out of their earnings and dividends. So, uh, 2018, like I said, it was a buck 83 and then they paid out a buck 28 of that in the form of dividends. Just something to see, like from a capital allocation perspective really quickly. You could glance over that. Well, you can see something really surprising here, right? And this is what I mean about the economics of a movie theater. Um, what was their operating profit in the last few years before COVID? Let's call it 430 million, 440 million, something like that. Mm -hmm. And then cash flow from operations in those years we know was about like, yeah, 500, 500 something. million. Yeah. So cash flow from operations each year was about 20% or so higher than operating profit. So now you have to have CapEx, but that gives you an idea that if you were not really reinvesting in your movie theaters, because they weren't doing a lot of CapEx to grow. Uh, if you weren't really reinvesting in your movie theaters and stuff, um, it wouldn't take a lot. Because you can see in the COVID years, how much did they do in CapEx? Yeah, 350. Oh, COVID years, 84 million, right. 100 million. Yeah. So, you know, if you were putting no money back into your theaters, which you could do for a few years uh, without seeing a, a lot of harm to Just it, guzzle. you'd be doing, you know, 450 500 million dollars a year in free cash flow so you're looking at that like well they could have the optionality to turn the spigot back 
and just generate a ton of cash. But how much of that would ruin their it would their position in the industry? It would, yeah. And that's the issue with AMC. We can go to AMC. Um, if we look, my problem with AMC um, is let's see, where are we? Uh, before COVID, yeah. So if we see before COVID. They're not, how much bigger are they than Cinemark in terms of sales and stuff? They're what, one and a half times or something? Yeah, yeah about that. Yeah. And then if we look at cash flow statement, they weren't generating any more cash flow from operations before COVID. No. Right. It's like basically the same. Yeah. Same amounts as Cinemark. They weren't really generating much in the way of free cash flow. No. Right. Yeah. They were plowing it all back into PPE. Yeah. Which is fine, you know, if you don't have a lot of debt or something. But then when they were having this issue with having a lot of debt, then I was worried about it. Now, because of what happened with their stock, they were able to dilute a lot. Mm -hmm. And by diluting, they ended up not going into bankruptcy or anything like that. But I would have expected them to have either a issue that they would have had to go into bankruptcy with COVID. And I was saying, I think on the podcast when COVID happened, that it wasn't one. I mean, COVID would have been the thing that put them over, but that was a risk they were running anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, well, you can make the case. I mean, AMC could look a lot different today if it wasn't part of the times, the meme culture, all these crazy valuations and stuff like that. I mean, they certainly benefited from this reflexivity thing. That if it hadn't become meme stock, it would have gone bank. It would have entered bankruptcy mm -hmm. definitely. For people listening, in 2012, uh, total shares outstanding diluted were 95 million. Pre-COVID in 2019, it was 104 million. Uh, where we stand today, or this is as of the end of 2021, 477 million. Mm -hmm. So they went from 104 million pre-COVID to 477 million after COVID or through COVID. Yeah, so that's a, that's uh, that's pretty steep. Yeah, right. But that's sort of a way of um, basically working with common shareholders to reorganize the company in a sense. I mean, that's not how they presented it. You know, but they recapitalized it with getting a bunch of equity that way, um, equity funding. So that made it so that they were able to pay their debt. So here's the other question, right? We can look at this with our eyes because we have zero skin in the game with AMC. If you're the CEO of the business, do you do whatever it takes to survive? That's a good question. Well, and is it the right thing to do? Well, you know, normally, um, you'd be critical of uh, a lot of times of a CEO because they're too willing to go into bankruptcy in a situation like this. Cause you have a very viable business, but you had too much debt and um, they'd grown and put money back into it and stuff. And perhaps they'd had the wrong, um, their capital allocation stuff put them in somewhat the, this risk. It wasn't really an issue in the industry downturn or poor performance by the company. It was really a, a issue that came up from the strategy that they pursued in terms of just, you could see with how they were using money. Um, but normally it would be that it's easier to go into bankruptcy and maybe you can stay on in your job and maybe you don't preserve much value for equity holders. In this case, what do you do? You dilute them down by what? 75% something like that. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, um, you're able to keep the company public and everything. But this way people who own the stock have the potential to, take part in any recovery in it over time. So um, if you look though, they're, let's see, they're, yeah, so what's their EV now? 
12.3 billion. Hmm. And have they ever done more than what was the highest they did in, in operating profit? Yeah. If we look up there, looks like 310 million in 2018. Yeah. So you're trading at over 30 times pre-tax, you know, um, even if we get into things like market cap, so even leveraged up, uh, the best we said they did is like 500 million cash flow from operations. Yeah. It's like 530 yeah. or something. Um, so that's still over 16 times cash flow from operations. It's not, I mean, there are companies that trade at that, of course, but it is more expensive than Cinemark. Um, I would like Cinemark better as mm -hmm. the stock, yeah. Um, but also, you know, Marcus has, you know, I think if you do a sum of the parts value, Marcus might even look better than Cinemark. Because but of the hotels? If they sold off the hotels, yeah. Which is they don't, they're not going to do, I don't think. But And that's kind of a family-controlled sort of thing, um, or family company at least. So yeah, if they if they sold it off, I should mention again, Marcus has dilutive securities out there. They're factoring that in, I think, in the most recent quarterly reports. But they have convertible stock that uh, convertible um, bonds that that will increase their common share count over time. Got it. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us on the Focus Compounding Podcast. If this is the first time you're tuning in with us, uh, thank you so much. Hit that subscribe button. And follow me on Twitter at Focus Compound, which is the best place to get everything that we uh, distribute content-wise uh, at Focus Compound. Everything is in the description below. If you're interested in learning more about our money management services, reach out to me at andrew at focuscompound.com. I thank you so much for all the support, and we will see you in the next podcast.